0: I'm Stephen Wright and this is Beyond Reasonable Doubt from Mail Plus. Colin McKenzie is a Fleet Street legend, who for decades worked for papers including the Daily Express and the Daily Mail. He is responsible for what many consider to be one of the biggest scoops of the 20th century finding escaped great train robber Ronnie Biggs in Brazil in 1974. It was during the golden age of Fleet Street. Fierce circulation battles, big budgets, generous expense accounts and first-class travel around the world. It was also, arguably, the golden age of crime reporting when police and journalists had much closer contact. Colin joined me in the studio to explain exactly how he found the man who had outfought Scotland Yard and British newspapers for nearly a decade. Colin, welcome to the Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast. You found yourself in 1974 at the centre of an extraordinary story, a story which, as a journalist, You'd want to be at the forefront of, and also as a policeman at Scotland Yard, you'd want to be at the forefront of. It must have been an amazing story to work on because everyone wanted to know where Ronnie Biggs
1: was. I agree, everybody did, and uh, finding him would be like finding Lord Lucan today, or uh, in those days, also finding Howard Hughes, who was the eccentric millionaire, billionaire, uh, who nobody had interviewed for decades. And I purely by luck, uh, came across his whereabouts when I uh, held a pre-Christmas party for my father who lived in Brazil and he'd been over on leave and we invited the neighbours and one of our neighbours was a 19-year-old student called Constantine Bankendorf, and he'd been backpacking around South America. And when he learned I was on the Daily Express, he went quite crimson, he said, my goodness, he said, I met somebody you'd love to meet. And before he could even finish his sentence, I said, you bumped into Ronnie Biggs in Rio, didn't you? He couldn't believe that I'd uttered those words because it was true. And he said, how on earth did you know that? I said, well, there's only a couple of really big stories out there at the moment. And one of them is to find this great train robber who'd been on the run for the last nine years.
0: Just behind me there is the signal which was fixed immediately before the raid. The driver had been coshed and handcuffed.
1: Have you any idea at all of the amount which has been stolen? Well, the best estimate that uh, my people can make at the moment is something in the region of about £1 million. Hulled up in a farmhouse, the gang allegedly played Monopoly with real cash as they counted their way through their halls.
0: Let's take a step back. The Great Train Robbery took place in 1963 and resulted in £2.7 million being stolen from a Royal Mail train. It was a huge amount of money worth about £100 million today. How did it happen?
1: Well, the plan was quite simple, really. They were going to stop the mail train the day after the August bank holiday, which they'd been tipped off, would be carrying used pounds and fivers and 10 shilling notes from Scotland all the way down through Carlisle and down to London. And they'd been tipped off, there would be at least a million pounds in cash in various mailbags on this train, and they'd been tipped off of the timings, and they'd got hold of this particular... A gang member called Cordray who knew how to stop trains he'd been practicing on the southern rail to Brighton apparently Roger Cordray and he knew how to change a green light to a red light by various little means they'd sorted out a farm leather farm that they had purchased for around four and a half thousand pounds where they were going to hole up for a few days after the great train robbery and of course, when they got it back to Leather State Farm and started counting it, they couldn't believe they had more than a million, then two million, and then another three quarters of a million. And it was far more than any of them had anticipated. It worked out, I believe, at around 125 to 140 grand per member of the gang, uh, which, of course, in 1963, you could probably put almost two noughts on that. So you could retire, you could buy a whole terrace of houses and live off the rents. You could do anything you liked with it.
0: But Biggs had a pretty small part in it, although he was to become the most notorious of the robbers. Uh, Talk me through that, please.
1: Yes, he uh, had become almost a semi-respectable businessman and builder and uh, carpenter in Red Hill, married his teenage bride, Charmian, and they had already, I think, two children by the time of the Great Train Robbery. He, he told Charmian he was going straight when they married. And by 1963, he, he was indeed, he had committed no crimes for some time. And um, he was just short of money. His business was suffering cash flow problems. And he wanted to borrow £500 pounds from his bank manager. And the bank manager said, no, you haven't got enough of a track record, Mr. Biggs. I'm not going to lend you this money. And at that very moment, his old pal, Bruce Reynolds, with whom he'd done one or two jobs in the dim, distant past, uh, turned up at the house and said, how are you, Ronnie? Would you like to earn yourself 40 grand? Well, of course, this was too big a temptation for a man who'd committed many crimes in the immediate post-war era. And he said, count me in. And he never told his wife or anything about it. And his principal job was to locate a British, ex-British Rail train driver who would be able to move the diesel engine one mile up the track from where it had stopped. And uh, they had planned to unload the train a mile further down the track at Bridego Bridge, where it was easy to throw the mailbags down to waiting uh, vans and cars and trucks.
0: Instantly, it was enormous news wasn't it it was
1: absolutely enormous news it was the audacity of it i think that uh, the public were amazed at of course it carried on being enormous news first of all they found the farm about five days later in buckinghamshire uh, in buckinghamshire
0: well the police are cock-a-hoop and understandably so because their deductions so far have proved absolutely right They were looking for a hideout within 30 miles of Cheddington, and they found it here at this deserted farmhouse, surrounded by overgrown fields, looking out over the Chilterns.
1: And then, I think Roger Corddry was the first one arrested, and it was because he uh, and a friend had rented a garage in Bournemouth, and their bad luck that the garage was owned by a policeman's widow, and she was very suspicious about why they kept coming to the garage and opening the boot of his car. And in the boot of his car, they found £65,000 worth of money they could track back to the great train robbery. And he was the first one arrested. And that was about three weeks later. It wasn't long, was it, before most of the gang were caught? The man who was supposed to have set fire to the farm and got rid of it all never did so. And therefore, some of the train robbers were careless and didn't wear gloves and left their prints, including Biggs. He left his prints on a sauce bottle and on the Monopoly board.
0: Well, as soon as the detectives arrived this morning, they at once knew this was it. Tins of food were found, fresh fruit, bread, mailbags, two Land Rovers and a lorry. Eighteen men were eventually arrested in connection with the robbery, weren't they?
1: Thirteen were convicted, two, I think, escaped altogether. Two or three of them were found not guilty to the astonishment of their colleagues, of course, but 13 were found guilty... Not everyone was found at the same time. The ones who were charged and convicted in 1963, stroke four, all received 30 years. And one said to another, "My God, you get less for murder." And to some extent, that was true.
0: Let's talk about Big. So he left his schoolboy era uh, fingerprints left on a sauce bottle. Even in that era, schoolboy era, in terms of a criminal getting away with it. He gets caught quite quickly, and then he gets 30 years, you know, very long sentence. And he's in Wandsworth Prison in southwest London, old prison, uh, with a big wall, but not so big that he couldn't jump over it with the help of uh, fellow villains. Talk me through that.
1: Yes, well, Wandsworth is one of the, I am told, not having been inside myself, but I'm told it's one of the most unpleasant uh, uh, nicks in, in in England and um, he was thoroughly fed up and he had to wear yellow patches because he was considered a danger and an escape risk about 18 months into his sentence I think it was July 65 uh, he had arranged or Charmian had arranged for a quarter of their Great Train Robbery money to be given to uh, not fellow Great Train Robbers but a gang member Uh, who was uh, expert in releasing people from prison. Mm -hmm. And they had discovered that uh, during exercise that this wall on one side of Wandsworth Prison was only about 25 feet high, and if they parked a removal van with a hole in the roof the other side of the wall, if you could get up the wall in the first instance and jump over, you could land on a cushion on the roof of the removal van, which uh, would then allow you back into the removal van and you would escape. and they had a predetermined time. Rope ladder was lowered, one or two of the warders had noticed it and they were rugby tackled so that they couldn't prevent Biggs. And two other villains got out with him who weren't supposed to. One was called Eric Flower. And Biggs jumped down onto the removals van. The van went about two miles where they got into cars and he and Flower were transported to East London to a safe flat. Somewhere in southeast London, while the arrangements were made for them to be taken to the continent and eventually flown to northern Australia,
0: you wouldn't exactly call it a sophisticated escape plot, would you? Very old school.
1: um. Very old school. It wasn't helicopters. It wasn't. But at this, we are talking 1965. It may have been old school, but it was effective.
0: It was, and obviously huge news that Biggs, not one of the big names in the Great Train Robbery but suddenly elevated to that position of being like a crime celebrity, he went to Paris and, uh, according to legend, he had plastic surgery there, didn't he?
1: Well, it's not just legend. It's all in uh, my earlier book, uh, Ronnie Biggs, The Most Wanted Man. He underwent very, very painful plastic surgery, which I think actually tidied up his looks a bit, but he he claimed afterwards it didn't really do any good. But uh, he had scars behind his ears showing where his... Uh, chin had been altered and his nose was altered and he said it was the most painful thing that ever uh, ever happened to any human being more painful even than childbirth (laughs) well i'll have to take his word for that Mm -hmm. but uh, he was there for about two weeks having all this treatment before uh, the gang arranged for a flight from paris to sydney initially and then other parts of australia
0: And what was his life like in Australia? His wife, Charmian, and their two children eventually joined him out there, didn't they?
1: They were living like a normal uh, expat family and um, I suppose nobody expected him to be there and he was a talented carpenter. He'd been working for Channel 9 in Melbourne, uh, the uh, television channel, and he was a carpenter used on sets and things like that. Uh, And they lived a sort of almost semi-middle-class life in a suburb called Dandenong. So it had a nice little four-bedroom house. And uh, by then they had three boys because she had a baby out in Australia called Farley. But he was
0: eventually discovered in Australia, wasn't he?
1: Late 69, the Biggs' presence in Australia was unmasked. He'd had a tip-off that the police were coming. I mean, the news channels were full of it before the police even arrived at her home. Uh, he'd gone to stay with some other expat, an old friend called Mick Haynes and his wife, uh, who was not linked to him in any way, which they would be today, as an own, a known associate. But uh, he stayed there for two months uh, while arrangements were made for him to get on this ship to go to Panama and thence to Brazil.
0: And that, that's, I mean, Panama for fugitives is, is a, a well-known destination. <laughs>
1: Well, it is, but in fact, it was just the fact that the the boat was stopping off in Panama, going up to uh, Los Angeles and Seattle, I believe. A
0: classic catch-me-if-you-can scenario. Absolutely. Uh, and he, well, frankly, uh, making a mockery of Scotland Yard. Well, they had
1: no idea he was in Brazil. That That I can be absolutely certain of. I understand... That the budget for finding Biggs had already exceeded over a million pounds, and we're talking in the early 70s and late 60s uh, on the on the hunt for Ronnie Biggs, who'd made a a, a bit of a mockery of uh, police endeavours. Two, two or three of the other train robbers who'd been on the run, like Buster Edwards and uh, Bruce Reynolds, had given themselves up, having come to the end of their tethers, uh, and one or two others were caught trying to escape. Uh, but Biggs was was the, the real sore in the uh, backside of the Scotland Yard, and they, they had spent literally millions and got nowhere.
0: Now let's talk about yourself. So by 1973, you're a young journalist uh, at the Daily Express. Indeed. A very different Daily Express to the Daily Express, sadly, that exists today, both in terms of its circulation, its budget, its reputation, its, its power.
1: It was a huge middle-market broadsheet newspaper selling over 4 million copies a day. And Express was always proud of the fact it had more reporters, more photographers, the complete package as a a popular newspaper in those days. I'd just come back from America where I'd done a stint at the New York office uh, of the Daily Express. There were four of us in the New York office of the Daily Express in those days. That's how much... Money was being thrown around. Uh, I had a wonderful time there. Came back and was put as the night news editor. Now, I'd never uh, been in any uh, managerial situation, uh, and I really didn't want that. I was an outside man as far as I was concerned, and I, I, I really didn't enjoy handing out stories to other people. But within a few days, we'd got the story that uh, Martin Bormann had been located in Buenos Aires, uh, the famous Nazi who was Hitler's, almost his right-hand man. And we allegedly had found him in Buenos Aires. Uh, we'd had um, Andy filed a really experienced reporter, and David Cairns, a wonderful photographer, down there for six months, and they'd cracked it. That's how much time you could spend on stories in those six days. Six months. Six well, months.
0: Some people are lucky to get six hours these days on stories. Indeed.
1: But yeah. they were down there for six months, and finally, we said we'd got him. And there's this huge picture on the uh, front page the day uh, the story broke of this man crossing a street in Buenos Aires. And we said, this is the famous Nazi. Not a story to get wrong. Not a story to get wrong. I went straight into the editor's office, here, McCall. I said, look, I speak fluent Spanish. I spent my childhood in South America because my father's a farmer in Brazil. Uh, I'm the man who should go out and help Andy Fahl and he said, oh, Colin, it's not quite as simple as that. This is a very slippery individual. He said, we're not entirely sure where he's living. And that was the first uh, worry I had, that this story might not all be all that it seemed. The man we had photographed crossing the street turned out to be a completely innocent Buenos Aires school teacher, nothing to do with Bormann at all. So you, you became can Im- a very
0: wealthy school teacher. I don't very think.
1: wealthy school teacher. I'm <laughs> not sure, I, I didn't get the figures of course of what yeah. the settlement was, but it made um, Ian McColl, the editor, look a complete fool, of course. And you know? That
0: had an impact, didn't it, on when you got the tip that Biggs was in Brazil. That, that made that well, editor uh, very cautious, not surprisingly.
1: I made certain that it was Biggs before i ever alerted the editor of the daily express i tried to telephone him in rio and of course he'd failed to pay his phone bill so that was no good Uh, it was just a buzz saying that the line was dead and then uh, constantine remembered an american girlfriend he'd had called um, huber and uh, we rang her and uh, she uh, very kindly agreed to get him to come to the house her house the following night so I rang him the following night, and by then I'd scoured the uh, Daily Express library to get all the details about Biggs and his life, about the train robbery. Uh, the train robbery actually happened a year before I became a journalist. I was still a uh, student at Oxford, but I remembered it, but didn't know any of the real details. So I amassed as much detail as I could about both him and the great train robbery, and I cross-examined him for about half an hour from my home phone in Battersea, and he came up trumps on every single question. Do you had no doubt that this was biggs i didn't by then no No. first of all uh i was getting friendlier by the day with constantine who was under no illusions it was biggs because of the things he would told him socializing with him for three or four weeks in rio Mm. Uh, but having cross-examined him uh, about his wife his family circumstances how many children he had, where they hid the money in the house in Red Hill, etc, etc., in the precise date of his it was crystal clear. He was either extraordinary Walter Mitty or the real thing. And I was convinced he was the real thing. And just to be absolutely certain, I asked him to send me his fingerprints. He sent a letter to me and the letter had his all his dabs on them and a little pastiche of a train at the bottom. And the letter said, Hi Colin Perhaps not the best set that had been taken, but certainly as good as those found on the Monopoly box and the sauce bottle. Convinced R.A. Biggs. <laughs> and that was his proof to me that he was the great train robber he claimed to be.
0: So how did you go about telling your editor you had this enormous scoop? I
1: went into him with... Brian Hitchin, the news editor, and Brian Vine, the editor IC Foreign, to tell him we'd found Ronald Biggs in Brazil. And his look was one of terror. He actually said to me, not on that interview, but a few days later, oh, Colin, I wish you'd never told me this story. I mean, it just, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. And then, of course, I remembered what a burnt behind he'd received from the Borman story. And uh, I realised I was in a bit of trouble.
0: Your editor, Ian McCall, did eventually decide to go ahead with the story, didn't he? Though not before he got the Metropolitan Police involved. Can you tell me how that happened?
1: He'd gone to a boxing match. He sat at this boxing match next to the assistant commissioner of police, Colin Woods. And in order to... Gained little insurance, so there wasn't a cock-up as there had been with Martin Borman. He said to the assistant commissioner, "One of my young reporters thinks he's found Ronnie Biggs in Brazil. Would you be interested?" Well, is the Pope a Catholic? said Mr. Woods, or words to that effect. And within twenty-four hours, of course, the yard were onto it like a flash. I was summoned uh, in from my day off at home the following day. And told to go with the news editor, Brian Hitchin, to the Daily Express lawyers' flat in Olympia. His name was Andrew Edwards. And when we got there, uh, I was quite well aware we were in the presence of the PC Plod and his uh, colleagues.
0: There was a commander there, Detective Superintendent Jack Slipper, who was to become a household name. One of his uh, junior detectives with him. And what was the mood like
1: in that flat? Can you remember it? Everybody was frightfully serious, putting me in my... I was in a state of shock, as you can imagine, and even Hitchin was shocked. He didn't realise quite what had happened until we got there. Not only were we told that um, Scotland Yard would be taking over, we were told we would get a photograph of him being arrested, and that was the nearest I was to get to Biggs.
0: With the involvement of Jack Slipper, your scoop was slipping through your fingers. It
1: was indeed slipping through my fingers, and... uh, Unfortunately, um, McColl was so terrified of mistakes yeah. that he had issued instructions to Hitchin that I was to do whatever the police informed me yeah. to do. Yeah. Now, there was only one little thing on my side, and that was that they had a phone number. They'd been tapping my phone, apparently, for a week, but I'd given them Miss Huber's uh, phone. Of course, that's the only place I could get hold of Biggs. Yeah. She lived about four kilometres in Jardim Botânico yeah. away from Biggs, who lived near Copacabana Beach. Yeah so that they didn't actually have Biggs's address uh, as a result of this phone call that they'd tapped. So that was the only, how shall I put it, the only card I had to play, was the fact that the, the yard may have thought they knew where he was, indeed they knew he was in Rio, but they didn't know where he was in Rio. And I used this card to negotiate a four-day break so that i could bill lovelace the photographer and i could take him to various locations get as much of the story out of him as i could before offering him the choice of giving himself up which is what he wanted to do as far as i knew or going on the run into central brazil
0: How soon was the decision taken and how quickly did you actually go?
1: Ten days later, I had drawn £5,000 in cash from Express Expenses Department because they didn't even want to book me through the usual channels to Brazil they were so worried about security. So I literally went up to a travel agency in Regent Street and bought three first-class return tickets by Varig via Madrid for Bill Lovelace, Constantine, who was going to meet Biggs and introduce us, and myself. Everything was arranged so that as few people as possible knew about it.
0: You've spoken to Biggs in advance, said, so what was the plan? We met him um,
1: the afternoon we arrived, mm-hmm. which I think was the Wednesday, and he was on the arms of this very glamorous girl called Lucia I'll come back to her in a minute because it <laughs> caused me quite a lot of trouble and we met and we had a chat and I said uh, to him I this stage still thought I had four days in Rio and every time I tried to get him to say what he'd been up to since he'd left Australia he would say tranquilo Colin we're on South American time no need for you to be in a hurry we're going to have two weeks fun you're going to take me to some lovely restaurants and this was the deal I'd done with him over the phone and we took around Rio, various sightings up the Corcovado mm-hmm. mountain, He lovely picture of him underneath picture the Christ statue. a pair of beauties, presumably, as well? The, well, there was a, one beauty with, with him, this girl Lucia. Mm-hmm. Now, I had no idea whether she was the actual girlfriend or not. Uh, but after his arrest, it uh, appeared that she was a temporary girlfriend. The real girlfriend had been up in northern Brazil visiting her parents. Right. Her name was Haimunda. Mm-hmm. And she came back and created merry hell that he'd been seen with other girls, yeah. and then dropped a bombshell in my lap, which made a very good follow-up story that she was pregnant, yeah. uh, which turned out to be Biggs's passport to freedom in Brazil. Of course, eventually.
0: Colin, he was living this playboy lifestyle. Uh, you know, why would you go,
1: want to go back to Wandsworth prison? Surely, the yeah. way he could get a job. I mean, it was all he was leading a sort of playboy existence in Rio, but it was very hand to mouth. Are you saying that crime pays? No, I would say uh, categorically it doesn't pay. He was doing jobs for expats. uh, There's quite a few pictures in there of him doing up flats for expat Americans Mm. and expat Brits. Mm. But it was very hand-to-mouth, and he was constantly running out of money Mm. and ideas. Mm. Uh, And, you know, Brazilian Mm. girls expected to be given a good time. They didn't necessarily uh, want to be subsidising their boyfriend. The thing he most wanted to do was reunite himself with his wife and family at that stage. Right. And uh, he felt he could live with nine years t- if that was going to be the end result. So you met him at a hotel. Uh, we, what was your first we, impressions we, of him? He was tall, taller than I expected, six foot one and a half. Pretty good looking, very tanned, high-pitched voice, which I hadn't expected. Quite a, you know, not, not a normal deep bass voice Mm. or criminal's voice Mm, mm. he had a sort of a bit of a south london accent the astonishing thing was he'd learned portuguese he spoke pretty fluent portuguese and i don't believe many of the other train robbers would have managed that he was quite well read i discovered you know afterwards doing his book and everything Mm. you know he wasn't one of these prisoners who just did time he actually went in the prison libraries and read he, the classics, you know. Did you quite like him? I immediately took a liking to him. He was a very pleasant individual. Hard to imagine him being a violent criminal. I can imagine him being a criminal, but not a violent criminal. Mm.
0: I mean, he put his trust in you that you're going to deal with this in a certain way, but it didn't turn out like that, did it? But you did get a chance to interview him, and Bill took pictures of
1: him. What did he tell you? My heart was beating a million one because I knew what was about to happen and I was trying to work out how I could tell him that uh, the police were on his tail and what did he want to do but I thought I'd leave it as long as I could I I believed he was going to be arrested on Sunday morning we were talking Wednesday afternoon so I was hoping to get all the pictures and as much of the story as I could out of him by Saturday when I would say to him now look I've just been told by my office at Scotland Yard are coming out here, God knows how that's happened, but what do you want to do? Do you want to give yourself up or do you want to go on the run? And it would have been literally that. But I never got the chance to do that because on the Thursday we went to various locations uh, with Bill Lovelace, got all these photographs sorted. Bill went down to Galleon Airport. Um, He'd booked a call to the office, I think which came through at 8 o'clock on Thursday evening. And at this point, he, he just wanted to tell them that he'd got a passenger on a British Caledonian flight landing at Gatwick the following morning, which had a whole heap of wonderful pictures that he didn't have to go through the local agency to file or, or wire. So that was a big plus. When he finally got hold of the office, they said, where the hell have you been? And We explained that uh, phone calls were taking hours and it was, you know, either you got on with the story or you waited around a phone for hours and hours. Bill, actually was making the phone call, I was still entertaining pigs. Bill came shooting back to the Trocadera and said, big trouble, he's going to be arrested in the morning. I said, what? I haven't even got the story out of him yet. He said, Slipper and Jones and Brian Vine are in a hotel 300 yards up the, up the beach. You've got to go there now and plan how he's going to be arrested in the morning. I said, you can't do that. I mean, I was shocked to the core that we'd been betrayed yet again by the office uh, and that I wasn't even going to have time to dig the story out of Biggs, let alone... Anyway, the decision had been taken allegedly because somebody from the Sun newspaper had rung the Yard's press office and said, we hear you're on the trail of Ronnie Biggs. Now, whether you believe that or not, I don't know. Personally, I think it was just McCall's way of making damn sure we had the story in the back of our pockets by Saturday morning, the big sales day of the newspaper. So Friday morning comes,
0: and Jack Slipper, Slipper of the Yard, is going to arrest
1: Biggs with your help. What was the plan? The arrangement was that we would be in room 909, which was Constantine's bedroom in this hotel on the ninth floor, Bill would be taking pictures of Biggs and Lucia, the glamorous girlfriend, and we would open the window of 909 when everybody was in situ and the police were outside waiting for this signal to come up the elevator and come into the room and arrest him. Well, we were you can imagine my heart was beating 50,000 to the minute knowing that within 10 or 12 minutes there was going to be a knock on the door and it was the police coming to arrest him, but I carried on as best I could. There was no point in telling Biggs at this point. The police were out there, where could he go? They were surrounding the, uh, the hotel. So I felt awful about the whole business. Bill Lovelace felt awful about the whole business. So you felt you betrayed him? I felt I'd betrayed him. It was the worst quarter of an hour of my life. And eventually the police, uh, the lift had failed or something, and sweating heavily. They'd walked all the way up to the ninth floor of this hotel, knocked on the door, Constantine went and opened the door thinking it was room service and there was Slipper of the Yard, all six foot three of him, moustache bristling. And then he came and he said, hello Ronnie, I think you remember me. Biggs of course was shocked. He was in the arms of Lucia on the bed. Bill had been taking some glamour pictures of them together. And he got hold of uh, Biggs. He said, come on, you're coming in the bathroom with me and I'm going to put the cuffs on you. And Biggs wasn't having any of that. He said, look, he said, I'll come quietly, but I'm not having cuffs on me. I don't do that. And I think Slipper saw the light and realised that there was no way he could escape. The sergeant interviewed Bill and me about what the hell we were doing, you know, hold up with a villain, blah, 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 blah. But largely for Conti's benefit to make it look as if we'd no knowledge that they were on our tails. I just
0: wondered what Slipper of the Yard, what his demeanour was like. He must have felt like he was the bee's knees.
1: He did. He felt he was the bee's knees the night before he'd even arrested Biggs. He'd been looking for him for nine years. I mean, he he was the one who arrested Biggs in his house in 63, in Red Hill. Right. But It was definitely personal for Slipper. Did Biggs say anything to you? He'd never blamed us at all until a bit later when the penny dropped that we must have been in on the deal. And I kept telling him, look, we were let down a second time he was supposed to be given the chance to go on the run if he wanted to and the editor had panicked and etc 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 so he never really trusted me after that although i did do a deal with him and gave him a large percentage of my book royalties because i felt he'd been let down badly the daily express had agreed to pay him thirty-five thousand pounds not him personally but his wife in australia Mm. for this story and they never paid a halfpenny piece So I felt very let down. The Scotland Yard came out with a press release Mm. after the arrest saying that the Daily Express and Scotland Yard had worked in tandem, which, of course, dropped me in it from a huge height. They then amended the press release, but the damage was done by then.
0: Were you worried that some of Biggs' friends in the criminal fraternity might target you as a result? Well,
1: that was the least of my worries. Uh, One of the worries was that the rest of Fleet Street thought this was a pretty poor effort on the express's part to go through all this and then let him down like that in actual fact i was worried about his mates uh, as i revealed in in my two books on biggs a chap called ronnie leslie who'd been paramount in getting him out over the uh, fence in wandsworth jail had arranged the whole thing came round to my house in battersea mm. knocked on our door my wife came to the door mm. He said, um, oh, I'm a friend of Ronnie's. Uh, I want to know how your husband found him in Brazil. And she, of course, shut the door and was really shaken to her core. Mm. She wasn't expecting <laughs> to be one of uh, the criminal world's finest uh, on her doorstep asking about Biggs.
0: So you broke the story.
1: Yeah. The circulation of the Daily Express went up by 300,000 for two months after that. 300,000. It had dropped below 4 million, which was a magic yeah, mark yeah, for the advertisers, yeah, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. Raised itself above uh, four million for about two months. You might be interested to know the bonus that Bill and I received 25 pounds each, which uh, we thought was a little modest to say the least. And uh, when you think (coughs) Bill's pictures sold around the world for about two or three hundred thousand pounds and the circulation went up three hundred thousand, that was a little bit mean.
0: So you had a head start on Fleet Street, but I know. When newspapers have head starts, you have to be very careful not to be complacent or to be overtaken on the story. Exactly. You were joined by, you know, some great Fleet Street operators, weren't you? I was. Uh, it was a complete and utter bun fight, and Charmian flew in as well, I believe, didn't she? She, from, she flew in. About five or six days later. Yeah. So just but talk talk me through that because all that was happening, and Biggs was in custody, and at that stage, nothing seemed to be going wrong.
1: Well, it soon started going wrong for me personally. I was left alone in Rio with no colleagues or anything apart from Bill Lovelace, the photographer. Meantime, the whole of Fleet Street descended on Rio. The Daily Mail sent three top reporters and a photographer. All the other papers sent one or two people. I remember um, Michael Brunson was there from ITN and uh, John Humphreys from the BBC. And so I was on my own... I got this good follow-up story about Raimundo, who'd shown up by the Sunday yeah. being pregnant, and this might be a passport to so you safety. Realized that. You realized I realised that straight away. It was uh, a big story. It was a big story. And then, of course, this thing went on for about 14 days. Biggs was in custody, wasn't he, for three months? He went up to Catechi yeah. Palace prison in Rio for about a week mm-hmm. while they decided what to do with him, and it was while he was there that Charmian arrived, and there was a press well, she thought she was having a private meeting with Biggs and the curtain and draw back and the world's media suddenly invaded her reunion with her husband, which didn't please her very much. Oh I know, it was extraordinary. Yeah. From there, after seven days, he was sent up to Brasilia, to the foreigners' prison in Brasilia, yeah. while they decided what they were going to do. Either send him back, which I thought was would have happened, yeah. or whether he to be allowed to remain in Brazil to look after Raimunda and the yeah. child who was going to be born in August.
0: Meanwhile, Jack Slipper went back to London, not with a fugitive beside him, handcuffed, but with what appeared to be an empty seat. It was a famous picture, wasn't it?
1: The male photographer, Mickey Brennan, very cleverly booked himself into first class with his camera, waited for Sergeant Jones to go to the loo, which left Slipper asleep in his seat in a two bank seats, with an empty seat beside him while Jones was absent and got the famous and iconic picture of Slipper on his own coming back in the plane to uh, London. Mm. And, of course, this was the Daily Mail showing what a great newspaper it was going to be and and already was.
0: So simple but so... Effective. And uh, devastating for the yard because Slipper would would be ridiculed, wouldn't he? Well, he he was,
1: of course, if you remember. There was a book called Slip Up. And he was sort of ridiculed, which was a little unfair on him. As he later said many, many times, look, I arrested him, we know where he is, we're no longer spending hundreds of thousands of pounds trying to look for this man. Mm. I've saved the yard money. That was his argument.
0: For the next 27 years, Ronnie Biggs would stick two fingers up at the police, wouldn't he?
1: Hello. My name's Ronnie Biggs, I don't know if you know me or heard of me, but uh, I've been around a long time now and I was involved in a great train robbery, if you remember that incident back in 1963, 30 years ago, there's some of you people who are going to be thinking about buying this book who probably weren't even alive at that time.
0: The Brazilian courts decided that because he would fathered a son with his Brazilian girlfriend Raimunda, he couldn't be extradited. So basically, his son, Michael, became his ticket to freedom.
1: And he became a celebrity
0: figure, didn't he?
1: And of course, he, he's always remained a, a figure of admiration in the criminal world.
0: Well, um, we've been waiting some time for this, although in fact, he has arrived quite a lot earlier than we originally thought. Um, that's because he had a very good tailwind, apparently, bringing him over from Rio. Um, it, it's normally
1: a... And, of course, when he came back in 2001, by then he'd had three bad strokes. Yeah. He couldn't speak even, which was rather, no. rather sad for him. No. He was sent to Belmarsh prison, and he was he was rather like Noel Card in the Italian job. He was master of all he surveyed. I
0: remember my very distinguished colleague uh, Richard Pendlebury was at court, magistrates' court, when Biggs was brought in to the UK in 2001 by the Sun, and it was a pretty sad, sad. spectacle. Yeah. To see this man dribbling and, uh, you know, clearly a very unwell man. But he had the
1: last laugh again, Mm. because if you remember, he was released in 2009 from Belmarsh, same day as Abdul Ali Magrahi, the Libyan bomber, was released in Scotland Mm -hmm. on sympathy grounds that he had not long to live. Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, he lived for another four and a half years outliving Al Magrahi. Uh, He lived for another four and a half years in a care home in North London. So although his life wasn't as he would have hoped, he did actually (laughs) win his bet to outlive McGrawie.
0: So I just wonder, why did you go to his funeral? How did that come about?
1: I just felt it was a sort of closure for myself in a way. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people at the funeral were just hangers-on who hardly knew him as far as I was aware. I did meet a Anglo-Brazilian businessman who became become very friendly with him, and he said how pleased Michael was that I'd come to the funeral, you know, and buried, buried the hatchet, as it were, you know. As far as I could tell, none of the great train robbers went.
0: So looking back now, I mean, he was a criminal of his era, wasn't he? And he so. famous celebrity criminal, and I just think, you know... There's sort of a glamorising of crime, which I'm always wary of, and we have to be wary of in the media, don't we?
1: I mean, the Great Train Robbery itself has never lost its glamour for some people. So that will always remain one of the iconic crimes of that century. And Biggs, although he had a tiny, tiny part in the Great Train Robbery, will always be the one robber whose name is remembered.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me on Beyond Reasonable Doubt. It's been fascinating. And your new book, Pressing My Luck, Memoir of a Fleet Street Veteran, by Colin McKenzie, published by Rebel Magic Books. Thank you, Colin. Pleasure. You've been listening to Beyond Reasonable Doubt, with me Stephen Wright if you've enjoyed listening please consider visiting mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts videos opinion pieces and more